dear friends, welcome to ZenPod once again. In the studios today, I have Sean Blacksweat, who runs partnerships and growth for Marco Polo, the video chat app, a TED fellow, GES entrepreneur, unreasonable goals entrepreneur, and a recipient of the Nama Bangalore Award for Best Foreign Resident. Sean moved to Bangalore in 2004 as the third founding member of Microsoft Research India. Sean holds 29 patents and degrees in computer science and public policy from the Brown University and he writes for World Bank and others at blacksweat.com. Earlier, Sean was a program manager in the UX teams of Office and Windows. He also was a White House intern with President Clinton's internet policy czar, Ira Magaziner. Formerly, Sean was the founder and CEO of babajob.com, India's largest digital job marketplace for the aspiring labor with over 8.5 million users, which was acquired by Quicker in June 2017. Sean is also a principal at Jaga.in and Dara.network. Sean lives in Bangalore, India and is married to Archana Prasad, founder of Jaga.in and the Bangalore Fantastic Tech Art Festival. They share a wonderful son, Vyom, a love for music, architecture and tech art, and a street dog named Berlin. We have a very interesting guest today, uh, Sean Blackswell, is that I, I got it right? Uh, and uh, Blacksweat. There's no, there's no uh, double L. There's only one. Blacksweat. Okay. So uh, Sean has been in India, and uh, we would like to call him an Indian. It's been several years now. And uh, over to you, Sean. Yeah. Hi. So uh, my name's Sean. Uh, goodness, I was born in America in California. Uh, I basically grew up all over the Bay Area, studied computer science and public policy, did a little stint at Microsoft and then move over with Microsoft to Bangalore in 2004 to help set up their research lab. Um, and then, you know, along the way, discovered, <laughs> you know, inequality, I suppose, or came very close to it. Uh, and wanted to do something about it, given the technology skills I had. And so basically ended up creating a company called Baba Job, which was uh, a job site primarily on the phone. And I ran that for 11 years uh, from, goodness, 2007, and then sold that in 2017 um, with the mission of trying to connect people to better jobs on their phone uh, at the informal level. So cooks and maids and drivers, you know, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, to give you again, my kind of history in brief, then I took a year and a half off, worked with my wife a bit, tried to put on a big digital festival that she was running, uh, and then really tried to be a better dad. Uh, and then two years ago, joined a company called Marco Polo because I really fell in love with this idea that people, if they are allowed to talk as long as they want and can see each other face to face and aren't interrupted even by those that they love, you get a different type of conversation that comes out of that. And so, so yeah, it's, and, and then I've been in Bangalore for the last 15 or 16 years. Awesome. And, you know, I've been basically holed up in our little house here uh, for the last four months. Awesome. So welcome. And the fact that you're still living there means Bangalore and India has treated you well. So yes, <laughs> thank of you. Course. Thank yeah. you. Sean, um, before we jump into my detailed conversation with you and trying to uncover the various facets of Sean's life, tell us uh, your take on spirituality. That's, a, you know, obviously this is a big question. Um, I think for me, the best way to answer that is the times where I felt spiritual. I would consider myself 
a full, like a rationalist in most things. Um, and it's interesting when I was in college, I read the brothers Karamazov and I really loved Dostoevsky and I actually took a whole class on Dostoevsky where basically we read like all of his major works. It was interesting because I remember for about three months there, I was reading this book and I was really inspired by Oleshka, I think Oleshka, uh, which is one of the characters who sort of modeled on Jesus inside of the brothers Karamazov. And his whole point is he just loves. And so I had like a brief flirtation it was weird, you know, as primarily an atheist of like, should I go to seminary? And sort of this idea of love was very compelling to me. of just like an all encompassing piece. Um, but I was less frankly into the parts that I didn't feel were as rational. Right. Uh, and didn't feel sort of stood up to argumentation and reason. And then I read I don't know, a book called non-zero by mm-hmm. probably my favorite author, this guy, Robert Wright. Right. Uh, he also wrote The Evolution of God. Non-Zero, you know, came up quite explicitly in the movie Arrival. Um, and that one, I think more than any other book, has probably shaped my definition of spirituality. And basically he makes this argument, which I do buy, which is if you look at evolution, all evolution, mm-hmm. it has been about in some ways, conflict and conflict where there are winners and losers. But very interestingly, when two groups, maybe cells or cities or people Mm -hmm. or nations work together, Mm -hmm. they create these win-win situations. The reason it's called non-zero is because it's about non-zero sum relationships. That when you and I are teaming together against the bad guy on the other side of the river, that we, if we both win, we both get to you know, succeed and, you know, our families do well. And if we lose this battle, we, we, we both die. And what's interesting, and he makes the argument, is that has led to larger and larger units of organization across all of at least earthbound evolution, right? And so if you think about like what a virus does and the set of incentives for a cell to team up with another cell, so that it can form a larger body, right? And those same incentives then applying to cities and city-states and nations. And then you think, well, wouldn't that apply to everywhere in the universe? Right. Wouldn't that, isn't that inherent in the structure of matter, mm-hmm. actually? Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, what are then the things that then lead to these expanding circles of empathy, right. these expanding circles of it making sense to work together, to have love, Mm -hmm. to extend that. And so, you know, he makes these really powerful arguments of like, if we were to meet alien species, they probably have contract law, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that if you make a promise, you have to keep your promise, right? And, And it's very simple, but like, how can I rely on anybody else, right? Unless they keep their promises. And it's, it's actually seems like one of the most fundamental things. And so that idea based on essentially our evolution, that is, we have these expanding circles of cooperation and higher levels of organization of matter. I think maybe the point with wow. like a capital P wow. of the universe, okay. right? Because that does seem to be the direction of the organization of matter, 
And within that, there are values. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I think is, is profound. And wow. so this isn't about an intervention as God, mm-hmm. right? But this is very much about what is the ultimate destiny of, of matter? And if that's the ultimate destiny, was that then, then the point of the creation of the universe? And, uh, Beautiful. And, and that one, I, I, you know, so that's basically the closest I am to spirituality, wow. but it is something that I, that I deeply, that I find very profound. And, and I think he's really onto something. Awesome. Very nice. Very, very intriguing. Very intriguing. Okay. Very different from what I've heard before. So very nice. Thank you. Uh, you've spent time in the White House, right? So a very yes. privileged, a very most powerful place on the planet, if I may. Uh, tell us yes. about uh, your story from the White House, uh, you know, till here, till now. If you were to sum it up, yeah. Well, you know, I was lucky enough to go to a good school. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, one of our alumni was this fellow named Ira Magaziner. And he was really interesting because he was a really great student organizer. So back in 69 at Brown, he organized all of the students into what some professors would call a riot to do something called the new curriculum, which was this idea that students should not have any required classes, that they should be able to choose for themselves what their education should be. Interesting. And so Brown, the university, like there's no required classes. You make it up. It is your choice. And there is no institutional structure that says you're going to take math because that's important or you're going to take science because that's important. You're going to study the classic. And it's like it has to come from you. It's like you have to. And so there is a requirement that you have to take 30 classes or and you have to major in something. But that's it. Right. There's not. So anyways, he organized this and he came back and he gave a speech and I really liked this speech. And at the time he was the internet czar for Clinton and I was studying public policy and computer science, which at the time was, you know, this is like 96, 95. This was not that common, right? I think there were 60 people in my computer science class. Now I think 50% of the graduating class of Harvard studied computer science, right? And, you know, then we were at 1% at the time. So it wasn't, and then this union of, you know, I was always really interested in politics and society and power. Mm-hmm. And I'll be frank, for the last 25 years, I've been desperately interested in the union of like how technology affects society and power. Um, and I had done a couple internships at Microsoft exactly for that reason, right? Because they had this technology piece and they had power, right? If you make a piece of software, you can put this in the hands of a billion people and they're subtly influenced, right? And so... Um, I really, you know, I'd done two internships at Microsoft and one at IBM by that point and a couple of my stepfather too. And so I wanted to do something with a public policy degree. And I, I basically went up to him and said, I'd really like to work for you for the summer. Um, and so he said, okay, apply. And, the, you know, it was the White House internship. Program, so I applied and Lynch. I got in. Uh, and then, of course, when I got there, things got super weird because that I got there, I think, in early June and the Lewinsky scandal hit in early June, right? And so every joke on the front page of the paper was about you know, the president <laughs> doing naughty things with a White House intern. Um, and, you know, it was weird. Uh, D.C. is a very strange place. It is full of wonderful people, inspired and motivated by all of the best reasons to change the world. And frankly, probably more cynical people who came in wanting to do all those things and then were frustrated and saw that money was terribly important 
And basically, I realized that everybody that I met who had been in D.C. for a really long time mm -hmm. was very jaded. And all of the people that seemed to enjoy their jobs had come into it much later, um, had been sort of called back for whatever reason. Oh. So had gone and had some career, but, you know, came in at a high level in their 30s or 40s. And so um, it basically taught me I didn't want to be in D.C., right? It was fun. It was super social. Everyone was really friendly. It's an amazing place because no one has any friends. And it's, it's a very young town. And you have this huge influx of, you know, 20-somethings like me. And so it's a very social town, right? And so I really liked all those parts. But, but you know, I, I just found I, I, I didn't want to end up like some of the older people that I saw. And so I decided that wasn't going to be my career path, at least not at that time. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, what brought you to India then? And, and, and the other part of the question is, obviously, there is something that has kept you there. So, yeah, um, well, I was originally brought to India. I mean, I was, so I'll, you know, after this DC thing, I had a you know, few more semesters of school and then I returned um, you know, back to school. And then I decided uh, I really liked my internships at Microsoft. It was a very empowered place. Right. This is like the late 90s. So it was the wealthiest company in the world with the most number of users and it was really exciting to me that I could work on things where even if we shipped bugs, 500 million people were going to have to live with that. <laughs> and that gave me a sense of responsibility, just like in the same way that governments do, right? Governments, if they make good or bad decisions, the, the nation has to live with that. And, uh, and hence, I think it's important that we have good, dedicated people, both in government, but also at these institutions where for good or bad, we have to live with it, right? And so... I was very attracted to that, um, and I'd been working. And again, I was I was I was drawn to the power centers of Microsoft, namely the things that made the most amount of money that also touched people directly. And so I worked on the user interface team, so basically the teams that made the stuff that you saw mm -hmm. as a user inside of Windows and Office. And but then I, you know, I had an ex girlfriend and I, and we really wanted to move abroad. And then simultaneously, there was some really interesting work uh, happening from some ethnographers inside of Microsoft who had gone to India and Brazil and Africa. And they were talking about, hey, these cell phones are changing how people run their flower vending businesses. And, you know, I'd spent the last four years working and thinking about the richest one billion people in the world, the people that had computers, you know, information workers. And it was really fascinating to me to basically think about, well, what, is, what does technology mean for, you know, everybody else, right, that didn't have a computer in the home? And this is like, you know, very early. This is 2002. Wow. So, it, you know, cell phones were not widespread by that point. Um, and so, but I was very interested to see, like, what is computing going to do to these other populations and how is it going to change those societies? Um, and so I was interested. And then there was this great opportunity that came up that said, okay, Microsoft had just sort of funded the research lab. Okay. And so I had a lot of friends in, in essentially Office MSN and, mm -hmm. you know, the consumer arm and, and Windows. And so I convinced the director that he should hire me as sort of the liaison of what the research lab did back to the rest of the company. Um, and so that's what brought me over. And so I was the first person to move over from the lab. And yeah. I, you know, spent the first month looking for real estate because we needed a building. Uh, yeah, it was back when 
companies needed buildings. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and we built that organization from the first three of us to about a hundred and, oh, wow. and it was tremendously fun. Right. I mean, and, and I will say, it's really fun to work in an empowered organization far away from the mothership with a ton of money, right? Like, you know, especially comparatively speaking, like, you know, Microsoft had a world-class brand and, you know, you, I, I compare that experience with being an entrepreneur and funding a company myself or raising it. Right. And it's just, there's like night and day. You're like, ah, so we wasted some cash. It's like, you just don't care. Right. And like, Oh, Bill Gates is a little rich or a little poor. Right. Um, and so I just think it was a really fun creative space uh, where we could work on whatever we wanted to work on. And, and I was really interested to see, you know, could we make technologies that were relevant to the emerging middle class and, and basically everybody in India. Um, and, and I really liked it. Um, but I will say I did get to the point where I thought I wasn't doing enough. Oh. Right. And uh and I thought that I wasn't using the skills that I had had okay. as much as was needed. And, you know, I came across this paper by this guy, Anurad Krishna, who's a professor from Duke, and he's also an ISC officer, uh, RIS officer. And uh, he basically had this point that I thought was tremendously profound, which was, you know, why do people go in and out of poverty? You know, why do people become rich or richer, or why do people become poor in their lifetimes? And he had this incredible study where he went to Rajasthan and he, he interviewed 3,000 families. Wow. And he asked them a simple question in 2002, um, which was between now and the time of the great emergency, this is late 70s, who in your village would you consider poor then, middle class then, or rich then? Mm -hmm. And who in your village would you consider poor, rich, or middle class now? Right? And, you know... If basically the definite, what he found, he found his, his studies are fascinating. Like the definition of poverty is the same, the entire world over. It is, you should be able to eat. You should be able to have a place to live. You should be able to close yourself and save something. Right. If you can do all four of those things, you're right. not poor. Right. right. And it's interesting that everyone, and he's done this in like I don't know, eight different countries now, the States, Uganda, Nigeria, India, Brazil, Europe, everyone has the same definition of, of what it is to be poor. It's, you can't do one of those four things. And if you can, then you're not poor, which is interesting. And then, you know, different countries have sort of different colloquial definitions of wealth, right? Do you own a home? Do you own a car? Right. Et cetera. But anyway, so I thought that was really fascinating. And then he looked at, and basically his whole point that really blew my mind is, you know, when you think about a poverty rate, and so he was looking at Rajasthan, and it's like, you know, yeah. basically his point was, time of the great emergency, 19% of the people said that the people in our village are poor, or their families in our village are poor. Okay. And between now, it was 18%. So you go, oh, there was a difference in 1% in the poverty rate over 20 years. And, and his point was, you know, and then you sort of say, well, okay, there's not much really happening there. Right. And so his point is, no, there's a ton happening there. What the part that was so fascinating was fully, in his particular case, <clears throat> like 16% of people mm -hmm. actually got out of poverty. Whoa. The problem was 15% of the population went into poverty. Right. And so his whole point is we think about economic poverty 
as essentially this static state. But it's not. It's changing all the time. People have successful businesses all the time that suddenly takes them up. People have economic blows due to healthcare that take them down. He, you know, through his work, he's discovered that a third of everyone that you meet that you would consider to be poor today was not born that way. It happened in their lifetimes. And so then the point then, in, in a, you know, that he talked about in this paper was, why does change occur? Right. And the answer is, well, people become poor due to healthcare related debt. Oh. This is this is the single biggest cause of bankruptcy in America. It is the single biggest cause why everywhere around the world becomes poor. Right. If you can't work because you got sick or you lost an arm or right. an accident happened, right. then you can't bring in money for your family. Correct. But health alone is not the reason people get out. Right. People get out usually because of income diversification. They got a different job. Right. And then he went to further to say, well, how do they get that different job? Right. And his point was, well, they usually know somebody who knows somebody that has access to opportunity. Right. And so his insight there is the exact same one as LinkedIn, right? Which is your professional opportunities are constrained by your social network. And the same is true essentially among the poor as it is among the rich. And so literally I read that paper and said, if well, we just had LinkedIn for the village, we could go home. And, and that was essentially the germ of the idea of Babaja. And I fell in love with that idea, right? which is namely, could we build a tech intervention that could connect people to better opportunities and better jobs as a way to catalyze the escape from poverty and in a big scalable way that would reach everybody. And so, I, as I said, I fell in love with that idea. I sold my house. I broke up with my girlfriend. Oh. I, she went home, you know, uh, and I quit Microsoft and recruited my stepfather and one other dude. And, and then we started Baba Job and that was my mission for the next 11 years. Wow. Wow. I'm impressed. And um, I, I liked what you said, LinkedIn for the people in villages. That's brilliant. That's, that's really, yeah. So, uh, so that brings me to my next question, Baba Jobs. Your thoughts, obviously, you now told us and the journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, quite so. A, quite a thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I, so I began this and, you know, it was, it began, there was April 2007 was a month of momentous change, right? In terms of, I've been working Microsoft for, I don't know, eight or nine years, uh, and I quit. Mm-hmm. And then <coughs> the woman I dated for nine years moved home and she and I broke up, and all of the things in our house were moved right. out. Yeah. And I started Baba Job. <coughs> And I started dating the woman who became my wife. Um, and so in that one month, <laughs> it was amazing because like everything that could change, <clears throat> except the city where I was living, did change, right? Um, and so anyways, I, I do think like there are certain moments in your life where you know you pivot and like I, I consider everything before then like a previous epoch or a previous era. I literally have a folder of pictures on my computer called old life. Right. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, and so, so anyways, uh, and then we, you know, we began, uh, I had a bunch of frankly dumb ideas from Microsoft that I tried to apply to, into Baba job, which were terrible, right? Namely that, Oh, we shouldn't just build a job site. We should also build a social networking platform right. and merge these two, which means 
that you have to succeed in four markets, right? You have to succeed in terms of making a social networking site people use. In our case, then we had to succeed at getting job seekers who didn't use computers and didn't have data-enabled phones onto the platforms. And our thesis around that was well, we should have a series of people called mentors that knew how to do that and would get paid when those folks got hired. And then you also needed employers. So basically, when we started, we had at least four distinct groups. And by the way, employers themselves is, you know, like a household is very different than a small business, which is very different than a big business, which is very different than a, you know, job placement agency. Like there were so many conceivable markets. And again, coming from a place like Microsoft, you're like, oh, that's great. But that's, you know, if you're doing a startup, you you don't want to, you can't, you don't have the bandwidth to deal with all of those different markets and trying to figure out how to make a compelling thing for each. So I had this whole, you know, I'd spent the previous 10 years thinking about integrated innovation, which is what Microsoft does. Like, oh, we have this asset called Word, and then we're going to clum on Excel to basically take our monopoly position in one place and extend that monopoly position to another. Well, if you're, you know, starting out, you don't have a monopoly position. You have to figure out one thing that you can do well and you get traction around. So it took like about a year to, to make that lesson. You know, there were other, it probably took two years for me to realize like, oh yeah, the types of people who I thought were good at their jobs at Microsoft are terrible for startups, right? Like middle management types of people that knew how to navigate things politically. That's not at all required. Um, You know, and so, so basically I would just say we made a lot of mistakes, right? Um, I felt like you know, I'd sold my house. So I had like $150,000 that I was putting into it. And I was like, Oh, I can pay people high salaries. And I'm like, that's dumb. No, you don't want to pay people high salaries. You want to save as much cash as you possibly can. Right. And so, but you know, there were a bunch of things that we did right. Right. Like, you know, we went and we went with just pencil and paper to places that we thought the poor people lived and said, Hey, do you want to get a job? And of course everybody's like, what's this scam? Right. (laughs) And but, and then we were always very good at telling our story. So we got a lot of press. I mean, it was crazy in terms of four months after we launched, we made the front page of the technology section of the New York Times and the actual front page of the International Hair Tribune. In, um, so, yeah. Um, so that's what, you know, that's kind of about the power of ideas, right? In terms of it was a compelling idea. And there were a few journalists that really kind of fell in love with those ideas. So, so anyways, we, we did the hard work, right, I would just say, right, in terms of we tried to do a lot on phones because we said, well, clearly everybody's going to get a phone, but there's no data on the phone. So we did around, a lot around SMS and try to figure out missed calls. We did a ton around trying to make it work for local languages. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on. Um, but I think, in, you know, in the end, we, we really tried to focus on how do you make this thing accessible okay. such that people could easily say, I live in this place. I'm looking for a job that can pay about this much money. This is my background. What are the opportunities? Right. And then connecting those opportunities worked. Um, and then, it, you know, you sort of get the snowballing effect of you get better known for it and thus you rank higher on Google and thus more employers come in and thus more job seekers come in. And so, you know, by the end of the journey, we had Nine million people, and oh my goodness. probably placed five hundred thousand people. Um, and so, yeah, uh, but it's a long journey. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I could go on, but 
course or some of the highlights. Wow. Brilliant. Um, it's quite a, and, and, and this is 07. So that's quite a, quite a path breaking thing in those days. And yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there was, there was no iPhone. There wasn't really a smartphone yeah. when we started. <laughs> 2000, I, I, I mean, 2006 was when I, when I, I joined Motorola and that was when mobiles were becoming big in the country and, and Motorola was, so I know, and if you're saying 2007, you launched this, that's big. It's really big because. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the village. We, we had done a lot over like texting. Oh. Uh, you know, which is now called chatbots, right? And so we're essentially <laughs> building interactive SMS chatbots in 2007, 2006. Um, and then we were very confident around missed calls as well. So, oh. you know, we, would, we had clever things where we would send somebody a text message. Well, mm-hmm. basically what somebody could do is anybody in the country could, dot, could give a missed call to 888 We would have an automated... IVR system, like an automated voice system that would call them back. That was in six different languages. And then said like, press one if you're in Bangalore, press two if you're in Delhi, press one if you want a driver job. Right. And so we'd get this basic data and then we'd just blast them with text messages that says, you know, there's a 8,000 rupee driver job needing two years experience in Andronagar. If you're interested, call this number. And then the part that was really clever that we did was when they called that number, that number itself was a missed call number. And so we would register that they were interested in that particular job. But we would then call them back and then we would ask them screener questions in an automated fashion there, such that if you needed to have a driver's license and you needed to be a 10th pass certificate, right, or you needed a commercial license, right? If you didn't pass those screener questions, you didn't then get connected to the employer, right? And so we call that, you know, you know, uh, rapid hire. And the point was we could create this magic thing where we could have an employer put in a job mm-hmm. and I could guarantee that 10 qualified people would call him in the next 10 minutes. Wow. Who were, because I had this whole funnel. Right. I had... Right. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. I could blast that out to 200, right? I could basically knew that if I sent it at a certain time at a certain price range, <clears throat> we would have a certain response rate of 8 to 11%. I knew then that about 60% of those people would fall off because they wouldn't basically surf, uh, wouldn't pass the screening questions. But there would be five to 10 candidates that would come through. So I could go into people's offices and I'm like, tell me who you want. If you're paying a competitive salary, I yep. will get people to call you about this job now. And so that was a little bit of magic. Yeah, brilliant. And and just curious, uh, how many of you were running the ship? Uh, you know, so I started with my stepfather and I, um, and uh, and one of Vipor. So we were the th- first three for the first six months, and then we hired uh, Veer, who became my co-founder, and he and I worked together for the next two, 10 years, right? Um, and so. Wow. He and I, and then, you know, we basically, we were about, I don't know, 15 people for the first three years. And their first three to four years were tremendously lean. Like I didn't take a salary for three and a half years. Right. Um, you know, and at first that's okay. But after a while you're like, this sucks. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know? And so, uh, but you know, we were fortunate in terms of eventually we were able to show enough traction that we were able to get some venture company, venture back, um, money. But you know, there were many moments of like, 
what the hell am I doing? The whole world is like, you can't build a business trying to get poor people that don't use computers or digital phones hired. Like you're just insane. And I'm like, but no, it's going to happen. Everybody's going to have a smartphone. And so it's one of those things of like, I feel like for many of my technology predictions, I've been correct, but about eight years too early. So, oh well. Brilliant. You, you, you should consider writing a book, Sean, on this. You're not the first person that said it. No, Truly, you yes. should. You should capture it before it loses seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Thank you. Yeah, maybe I'll put pen to paper one of these days. Yes, yes. Uh, one of the things that inspired me about you uh, specifically, Sean, was uh, technology for good part. That's an amazing mm. concept. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a technology person myself. Read a lot about it, but somewhere there is... You know, there is the commercial angle that takes over and then... Yeah, somewhere most of it is bullshit. Yeah, and the good gets left behind. But, uh, but in your case, it is a genuine thing. So it's an amazing concept. Please uh, let us in on it and tell us uh, your view behind it, uh, Sean. Well, I, I guess I look at it through the grand scope of history, right? In terms of... Yeah, you know, one of the authors I like a lot, he's a little controversial, but I like him a lot, Stephen Pinker, right? And so he wrote Enlightenment Now. And, you know, basically there's this thought of why is the world richer now than it was 250 years ago? Mm-hmm. Why do we have a better standard of, of a standard, you know, standard of living? Not for everyone, surely, mm-hmm. but on average, it's certainly better than it was 200 years ago. And certainly better than it was 500 years before that. And more interestingly, it's certainly better than it was 100 years ago and definitely better than it was 50 years ago. And by all evidence, actually much better than it was 20 years ago. And so the question is why, right? Why is the standard of living, right? And, and obviously we have a lot of problems still. But if you look at access to health care, childhood mortality, right? Women's rights, gay rights, liberal values, yeah. democracies on earth, right? We're clearly doing better. Yep. And I have a strong belief that one of the reasons for that is productivity enhancements, right? You can do more work and make more economic output with the same unit of human time that's going into it, right? And that is increased with technology, right? And so there is this piece where I I really do believe that many... Like, certainly our values have evolved as well, Correct. right? But, and, and positively in large part, right? Um, but a lot of the reasons that we can have the comfort, the relative comfort compared to 100 years ago, for most people that we have now, is those advances in technology. And so I do think it is possible to actually have technology for good, like in a positive, like, the evolution of humanity gets better. And there are a lot of parts you can't argue with, like clearly advances in medicine, especially cheap medicine that is made available to everybody, clearly makes people's lives better, right? So I guess I'm a, I'm a believer. And the part that I find really empowering and interesting is that, well, if you do this well and you play this game right, you as an individual can make those technology contributions that have this, this multiplicative and positive effect on people. Um, I'll bring up one other point, which I think is really interesting that I feel like is underappreciated. And as a tech guy, I hope you, you I'm sure you appreciate it. Yes. 
which is there's a quote that's sometimes thrown around. I think Mark Andreessen made it, which is software is eating the world, right? And the question is, why is software eating the world? Like, what what does that mean? What is software? And for me, software is this element that's kind of epitomized by open source, which is open source. What is open source? It's a set of programming languages and code that lots of people contribute to and everybody gets to benefit from. And so (coughs) software in particular means you can make a contribution and somebody five years from now gets perfect reuse of your contribution. No technology in the history of humanity has ever looked like this. Well, that's not true. The first printed books looked like that. There could be knowledge that was spread. I mean, like the enlightenment happened this way. There was knowledge that was being figured out over here. And if you wrote it down, you could spread it everywhere else, right? right? And so what we're seeing with software, it is the perfect reuse of like, oh, I have all of these layers of abstractions that are doing things and benefiting on my behalf. And now I can make a website. I can make the best, most modern website by literally just installing a few lines of code. And that, this function of software and perfect reuse is actually one of the only things that I think we as an advantage have. Well, we have a lot of advantages of humanity, but it's one of the things that actually gives me hope that we actually might be able to solve climate change. Because like never before have we been able to leverage the innovative capacity of every of or at least half the people on earth simultaneously right and that i find just incredible and so i do think like we should be able to guide that for good right now there's the flip side of that which is all of this technology seems to be making massive consolidation of power right massive ability to influence and make a, an unreality. Like your set of reality is entirely different than mine and it's entirely mediated by the screen. And I, I'm as worried as anybody of like, how do, you have, how do you have a democracy when people don't agree on facts, right? Like you say the moon is black. I say the moon is white. I'm absolutely believing it. And it's like, you know, you say the moon is a terrible threat to our existence. And I say the moon is just, you know, something moving the wave. And like, how can we then agree on the same course of action of what we should do about the moon, right? Um, and so I, I worry about that too. But, but I do think there's potential. And again, if you look at the long sweep of things, the potential is generally positive. And I, I'm a big believer that, you know, the smart people of the world, rather than spending all the time trying to figure out how to make the lives of rich people slightly more convenient, we, we should be trying to figure out, like, how do we bring everybody up? So that goes back to your core of inequality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm sorry we have to take a break right now, but we will be back very soon with Sean Blacksweat in our second round of the conversation where he talks about empathy. Are we doing enough to alleviate poverty? His love story with India. How can technology be put to better use? The inequality that exists even today. His idea, Marco Polo his inspiration, and then his favorite book. So please don't go away. Stay tuned and log into the second conversation with Sean Blacksweat. Thank you. <laughs>